Our Father in heaven, we echo the words of that, that last song, Lord, that we confess, Lord Jesus, that you are our King. Father, we confess that your Son, whom you have sent to save us, Lord, who died for our sins, who rose from the dead, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, it is our joy to honor him. Lord Jesus, it's our joy to honor you. And we pray that what is spoken from this pulpit this morning would honor you, that you would be exalted and glorified, and that your people would be edified, Lord. Um, we come before you knowing that we are but dust. We are so prone to sin. We are prone to wander. We are prone to, uh, to twist your word. And Lord, we just ask that that would not be what happens here this morning, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed, that you would place a guard over my mouth, Lord, that you would not allow anything to pass my lips that is uh, inaccurate, that is not true, that is not faithful. And may you grant your people discernment, Lord, to, to see what's true and to see what what is not. And that what is true, Lord, may you cause our hearts to hold that fast. And may we believe it. May we walk in the light of it. May we obey it, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Psalm 4 today, which we read for our call to worship, Psalm 4. And as you're turning there, I'll just go ahead and read it for us again. It says, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Verse 1, David says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart, more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. The Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. He said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That verse tells us that when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ in faith, when we decide to spend our lives following him, we are signing up for persecution. Now this verse that Paul wrote to Timothy doesn't tell us how severe that persecution would be. It doesn't tell us how frequent that persecution would be. It simply says that we will be persecuted. Whether it is as severe as being burned at the stake or whether it is as comparatively light as getting a tongue lashing from your unbelieving teenager when you uphold God's standard of righteousness in your home, if you are a Christian, you ought to expect that following Christ will sooner or later result in some form of persecution. And when we come to Psalm 4, 
we find the testimony of a man who had signed up to follow God wholeheartedly. We know that David was a man after God's own heart. And it just so happened that God had called this man to be the king over Israel. David was willing to follow God wherever God called him, and God called him to the throne over Israel. And as a follower of God, David experienced persecution, and we read about that in this psalm. And thankfully, God moved David to write a song about his experience and to, to, to testify to us how he was able, as a suffering believer, to be content in the midst of unjust suffering. Content. Contentment is something that we are called to as Christians. Contentment. But that is something that it is so easily, easily lost. It is easy to lose sight of it, to lose it, to misplace it, especially when we face unjust suffering. In this psalm, we find a blueprint of the life of a person who is content in God even when he's excluded or reviled or slandered or persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And if he's able to find contentment in that situation, he's able to find contentment in any situation. And so as we look at this psalm together, we're going to see three actions of the suffering believer who is content in God. Three actions that you and I must take if we would be content in God, even content in the midst of unjust suffering. In verse 1, we see that first action of contentment when others would seek to do us harm as a result of living for the Lord. If we would be content in God, this is what we need to do. We need to pray for grace for ourselves. Pray for grace for ourselves. David says in verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. This kind of heart is echoed in the life of the Apostle Paul, someone who was very familiar with unjust suffering. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9, we find how God answered Paul when Paul was crying out to the Lord, lamenting his unjust suffering, that there was a messenger from Satan afflicting him, and he cried out to the Lord three times. And how did the Lord answer him? The Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. We need the grace of God to sustain us, as we endure the evil that others would pour out upon us. We need the grace of God, especially to enable us to respond rightly to someone who is mistreating us, rather than respond sinfully to them. We need the grace of God in order to find contentment in the midst of suffering. And David models this for us here in verse 1. He begins by praying a desperately bold prayer. He says, answer me when I call. It sounds like he's bossing God around, but that's not what he's doing. Instead, in the midst of his suffering, David is seeing God as his first and only option, the only one he can come to, the only one who can 
buoy him up, sustain him in the midst of his suffering. And so he boldly cries out to the Lord. It's like Peter. Remember the Apostle Peter when he was with the disciples in the boat on that stormy sea and they saw Jesus coming to them walking on the water. And the Lord, uh, Peter said to the Lord Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter stepped out of the boat. He began to actually walk on the water and approach Jesus. But then what happened? He saw the wind and the waves and he began to sink. And what did he say when he began to sink? Did he say, Lord, if you don't mind, would you not allow me to drown? No, he said, Lord, save me. And that's the kind of desperate, bold prayer that David is praying in this first verse. And as he goes on, I want you to notice that David seems to acknowledge that his bold prayer does not come from a sense of entitlement. David is not a self-righteous man who thinks that he became king because of his own merit and he deserves to remain king. And so he's saying, God, you better answer me because I deserve this. No, how does he address God? He calls God, God of my righteousness. God of my righteousness. God who vindicates me. David's righteousness is not based on who he is in and of himself. His righteousness is based on who God is to him. David's righteous standing before God has everything to do with God, and it has nothing to do with David. He says, O God of my righteousness. And then he goes on, he says, You have relieved me in my distress. You have relieved me in my distress. That word for distress, it is the sense of narrowness, tight quarters. And the word for relieved, it means to create a wide open space for someone. So David says that he was in distress. He had felt totally claustrophobic, hemmed in and closed off by his enemies who were surrounding him. But God had relieved him. God had brought him into a wide open space. And so David could breathe easily again because of the God who relieved him. And then finally he pleads, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. We all know what grace is, right? It's unmerited favor. He says to God, be gracious to me. He doesn't say, God, I deserve your help. You need to act now. No, he says, God, show me your undeserved favor as I'm suffering here. So looking at verse 1, if you are someone who is content in God, how will you first respond when your boss cuts you off from that promotion because you decided to be honest when your boss really wanted you to fudge the numbers or to be dishonest? How will you first respond when your friend decides to no longer be your friend because she can't be seen with a weirdo Christian like you? How, you, how will you respond when someone spreads lies about you because you stood up for righteousness? If you are content in God, you are not going to lash out in order to defend yourself because you will realize that true contentment is not found in that promotion. It's not found even in the, the friendship of that friend. It's not found in having everyone think highly of you. No, you realize that True contentment 
is only found in the sustaining, comforting, life-giving grace of God. And so if you remember that God is your righteousness, and God is your relief, and God is your contentment, then when you're suffering distress, even unjustly, He is the one you will run to, because you know that what you need is Him. You need His grace. You need His unmerited favor. That's what you need. You don't need to get even. You need the grace of God. So the contented person will pray for God's grace to, to, to be lavished upon himself by God. Now what else? After we've gone to God's throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need, what will we do when suffering unjustly if we are truly content in God? Well, in the life of David, we find that if we have the opportunity, we will proclaim repentance to our persecutors. We will proclaim repentance to our persecutors. We will seek to bless them by pointing them to salvation in the Lord. And that is what David does in verses 2 through 5. Let's look first at verse 2. What does David say there? He says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will my honor become a reproach? He seems to be speaking there of his honorable position, his glorious position as king, the position that God has placed him in. And he's asking his enemies, how long are you going to turn my honor, my position into a reproach? It seems that these sons of men, these enemies of his, are trying to taint his reputation in his honorable and glorious position as king. Now, we don't know the precise circumstances uh, that David is finding himself in in Psalm 4. We don't know the occasion upon which he wrote this psalm. But these types of slanders are recorded for us in the life of David. We saw some of them last week. For example, in 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 6, we don't have time to turn there, but in that passage, that records for us how Absalom, David's son, began to form his conspiracy. And remember, he would stand at the gate, and as people came in, and as they went back and forth, he would say to them, if only I were the judge, if only I were king, then I would do a better job than this king. He's saying, you know, he's really failing in his job. If I was in that position, I would do much better. That's one kind of slander that we see there. Another kind is in 2 Samuel 16, verses 7 and 8. Remember Shimei, as David was fleeing Jerusalem, Shimei, one of the members of Saul's family, came and he was accusing David of something. He was accusing David of bringing bloodshed upon Saul's household, upon Saul's household. And of course, if you read the life of David, that was a lie. That was not accurate. David did nothing but honor the household of Saul. He dared not touch the anointed of the Lord. But Shimei was saying, you did this. It was a false accusation. And this is what the revilers of believers do. They falsely accuse the believer of being unfaithful and incompetent in the area of responsibility that God has graciously put him or her in. 
In David's case, it was his position as king. In your case, it might be your position as a valuable employee. It might be your position as a supervisor in your place of work. It might be in your position as a trusted friend or even as a parent. It might be in your position as a servant in the church. As you are faithfully following Christ, your behavior and your testimony is going to expose the sin of the unbelievers around you. And in many cases, it's going to make some of them very uncomfortable to the point that they would rather not have you around anymore. And oftentimes, the most effective means that they have of getting rid of you, you who are an annoying thorn pricking their conscience repeatedly, often the most effective means they have to get you out of their life is to revile you, to slander you, to taint you so that you will be removed from your, from your position. You see, they seek to turn your exalted position into a reproach. They seek to turn your honor into shame. And that is what they were doing to David. And so he goes on to ask them in verse 2, How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? I want you to notice that David here is not returning evil for evil. He's not slandering them in return. Now, if David was a man who was seeking contentment in his, in his position as king, and he got slandered, what would he do? He'd slander back. He'd say, you can't trust these guys who are saying this about me. And so he would slander them back. But that's not what he does, because he's not seeking contentment in his position as king. Instead, David seeks to show his enemies their evil ways. He seeks to show them that what they are spending so much energy to accomplish is worthless. He shows them that you guys are seeking contentment in tearing me down, but that is just chasing after the wind. And he tells them why. He tells them why their pursuit is vain. He says it in verse 3. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. What David's enemies don't realize is that God is for David. God is for David. And that's good news for us here today because in this verse we realize that though our human enemies and though the devil can poison others against us by their lies. Who can they never poison against us? They can never poison God against us. Their lies can never convince him to, to turn on us. I want you to turn for a moment to Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, where Paul echoes this truth. Romans 8 and verse 31. Paul writes this, he says, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? See, if God Almighty is for us, it doesn't really matter who's against us. It's just 
like the stones being against us. It can't do anything if God is for us. All that matters is if God is for us. If God is for us, who is against us? Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. If God has declared us righteous in Christ, there's no one who can come along and trump his verdict. There's no higher court that anyone can appeal to to overturn that verdict on us. God is the one who justifies. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, all of these, these tribulations, distresses, persecutions, famines, nakedness, peril, or sword, in all these things we do what? We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what David is telling his enemies, saying, listen, God is for me. God is for me, you who are slandering me. And if we are finding our contentment in God and in Christ we know that God is always and forever for us. Should there ever be anything that can take away our contentment? No, because the one in whom we are finding contentment is always for us. And that is good news for us who are believers. But that is bad news for our enemies. Because the enemies of God's children are going to find themselves not fighting against David, not fighting against us, but fighting against who? Against God. And if that is the case for them, instead of wearying themselves, trying to discredit David, what should his persecutors be doing? If they realize that they're actually fighting against God, what should they be doing? And we come to verse 4. Tremble. Tremble. The, this Hebrew word that is translated tremble in my version, it has the sense of trembling due to strong emotion. And depending on the context, the emotion that is causing that trembling can be anger, or it can be fear, or it can be any other strong emotion that you're so worked up about that you're trembling. And in the light of verses 2 and 3, the fact that his enemies are speaking to him, slandering him, and David says, listen, God is for me, the one that you are slandering. And given the fact that in uh, verses 4 and 5, each of those verbs are plural. So David is talking to a group of people. He's not talking to himself. He's not talking to an individual. He's still talking to a group of people, commanding them, starting off with tremble. 
So presumably it's the same group of people he's been talking to, his enemies. He says, tremble. So the emotion causing this trembling would seem to be that of fear, that they should realize that they're actually fighting against God and they should tremble in response to that. Say you were swimming in the ocean with your family and you feel something brushing up against your leg annoyingly, repeatedly, and you think it's your annoying kid brother just messing with you and so you start kicking against it. And then you get so frustrated that you figure, I'm going to go under the water and I'm going to teach my kid brother a lesson. And so you put on your goggles and you dip your head beneath the surface and what you see is not your kid brother, you see a hungry 20-foot-long great white shark. What would your response be? Wouldn't you tremble? And so when a man realizes that he is not fighting against a man, but he is fighting against God, which is a far worse situation than being in the ocean with a shark. What should his response be? To tremble. And so David exhorts his enemies in verse 4. It's a command. He says, tremble. He wants them to walk wisely. And what does Proverbs say is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. So he says, tremble and do not sin. Do not sin. Back in the ocean, when you realize that what you're actually kicking against was a great white shark, you're going to stop treating it like your kid brother pretty quickly, aren't you? And David's enemies should realize that who they are really fighting against, that should change their behavior pretty quickly. They should stop sinning. They should turn from sin turn from abusing God's children. And then David goes on in verse 4. He says, meditate in your heart upon your bed or speak to your heart upon your bed and be still. In other words, he's commanding them. He's saying, take some time to think about what you are doing. And instead of raging against me, be quiet before the Lord. Be quiet before the Lord. Instead of seeking to tear down a believer from the position that God himself has put him in, they should instead, verse 5, trust in the Lord and worship him. They should offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. He's calling on them to honestly evaluate what they are doing before God. And if they honestly evaluate what they're doing, they will see that they are chasing after the wind, that they are seeking contentment in the wrong place, that what they're doing is sin and they need to stop. They shouldn't be concerning themselves with David. They should be concerning themselves about their own standing before God. That's what they should be spending their energy on. I want you to turn with me just for a moment to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. As we think of how we ought to apply these verses to our own lives when we suffer unjustly as believers. Matthew 5 and verse 43. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we are citizens of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying we ought to love our enemies, pray for our enemies, greet our enemies, not return evil for evil. And when you think about those who may come against you for your stand for Christ, what is the greatest way that you can think of to love your enemies, to bless those who persecute you? Is it not to proclaim the gospel to them, to help them see their sin, as David is doing in Psalm 4, to help them see the danger of their souls? Is it not to seek the salvation of your enemies? Is that not the highest form of love for those who are coming against you? And that is what David models for us here in Psalm 4. Snapping back at your boss with a well-crafted insult or rejecting your friend after they rejected you or answering back to your rebellious child with a harsh word. These are the prideful responses of someone who is not finding their contentment in God. They are seeking contentment somewhere else seeking contentment in that promotion, seeking contentment in the friendship of someone, seeking contentment in the behavior of your child. But instead, lovingly proclaiming the gospel to your persecutors, calling them with gentleness and reverence, calling them to repentance, that is the response of someone who is content in God. Because that enemy can't affect your contentment. They're not stealing your contentment because it's in God who is for you always. And someone who is so contented in God, he wants that contentment even for his enemies. He wants his enemies to know Christ. So, when facing persecution, what else does a truly content believer do? In addition to praying for grace for yourself, in addition to proclaiming repentance to your persecutors, what other thing will we do if we are content in Christ? Well, that other thing is we will praise God before the congregation, even in the midst of our suffering. We will praise God before the congregation. And this is what we see David doing in the last three verses. He's praising God. He's testifying to us about his contentment in the Lord because he wants us to be content in the Lord as well. He's saying, God is still enough for me even when I'm enduring this. And that's very important because when the world sets itself against you as a believer, you can easily become so discouraged if you're placing contentment somewhere else. You can forget that God is with you and that he's for you and that he's enough for you. 
So if you are someone who is experiencing contentment and you praise God about that and you testify to the congregation about that, those who hear you when it becomes their turn to suffer, they can draw on that truth that you proclaim to them. And they too can find contentment even in that situation. So contentment is a treasure that we should want to share with each other, including our enemies. David, in verse 6, he knows that there are many who are not finding contentment in God. Verse 6, he says, Many are saying, who will show us any good? Who will show us any good? He may still be speaking of his enemies here, or he may be speaking of discouraged believers, or even a mixture of, of those two groups, or he may be speaking of his nation over which he's king. Whoever it is, these people that he's speaking about seem to be enduring some kind of trial because they're exclaiming, who will show us any good? And they are not content. They don't know who it's going to come from, and they're lacking that contentment. They're seeking for someone to fill them up with something good, something pleasant, someone who can inject some measure of joy into their lives. They're like King Solomon, who in the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll remember he, he wasted his astronomical wealth and wisdom, flipping over every rock he could flip in order to find some kind of pleasure, some kind of lasting contentment. And at the end of it all, in chapter 12, verse 8, he repeats the same refrain that he repeats through the whole book. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He couldn't find it in anything under the sun. He was looking everywhere except the one and only place where true contentment can be found, and that is in his creator. But David already knows the secret. He already has found the secret of contentment. He knows where his contentment is found. And so what does he pray for those who are crying out for contentment? What does he pray for them in verse 6? He prays to God. He says, lift up the light of your countenance, the light of your face upon us, O Lord, O Yahweh, O Jehovah. He knows that it can only be found in the Lord. And so he prays that for them. Then he says this in verse 7. He says, You have put gladness in my heart. This is his testimony. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Even in the midst of unjust suffering, David says that his God has put more joy and gladness into his heart than can be gained from this world. Even in times of harvest when there's the most bounty, in his suffering, he has more joy in the Lord than anybody would have in harvest time apart from the Lord. He has found the gladness that lasts even when everything and everyone is against him. And then it leads him to say, verse 8, he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. When you lay your head on your pillow tonight, I want you, before sleep overtakes you, I want you to ask yourself whether or not you are experiencing 
God's peace? Are you resting in the fact that in Christ God is for you and that he alone, as David says, he alone makes you dwell in safety? Is that your attitude when you lay your head on your pillow tonight? Or instead, are you overcome with anxiety, scared about what tomorrow may bring? Because if anxiety and fear and discontent and despair, if those are the things that are gripping your heart tonight, rather than God's peace, that is the symptom of you not seeking contentment in the Lord, but seeking for it somewhere else. And I can't tell you how many times I'm in bed and I, I'm not seeking contentment in the Lord. I'm all worked up about what's going to happen the next day. And it's because I'm looking for contentment in a correct, uh, to me, a correct resolution to the problem when I should be looking for it in the one who does not change toward me, in the Lord. And if that's you, like I am so often, if that's you, you know the answer to all your anxieties. You know to whom you have to run. And I would encourage you to run there. Turn from that idol that you've started bowing down toward, that thing that you're looking at to give you contentment, turn from that lie that you have begun to fall for. And instead, do what the Apostle Peter says to do when he is speaking of this exact same kind of situation in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. He's writing to persecuted believers. And listen to what he says. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. So when you are being reviled, if you are finding your contentment in Christ, in God, that is, if you are setting him, not what others think of you, not your circumstances, but him alone on the throne of your heart, you will have hope, you will have joy, you will have peace, you will have contentment, even when it feels like everyone is against you. And when others see that contentment, that hope, that joy that you are exhibiting in the midst of that great trial, they'll ask, how are you able to do that? And you can tell them, you can testify to them about the Lord Jesus. But if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you should tremble on your bed tonight. Not out of anger or fear, over your weak hold on the things of this world that you are depending upon for contentment. No, instead you should tremble that you are fighting against God and it is a fight that you cannot win. The Bible tells us, tells you that you are headed for hell where God will pour out his fiery judgment upon you for your sin. But through this psalm, our merciful God, your merciful creator, he is urging you to repent from worshiping things besides himself. And he's urging you to come to him in faith and to worship him alone 
to find your contentment in him alone. David's God, this, this one in whom he found contentment even when suffering, this same God 2,000 years ago became a man. He took on flesh and dwelt among us and he lived a perfectly righteous life and he was crucified on the cross to pay the penalty of the law against you, against me, for our sin. And he rose from the dead so that his people, those who trust in him, could escape his judgment upon them, could escape the monotony of living for empty sin, and could turn to him and find satisfaction and contentment. And that person, that God-man, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And through this psalm, he is inviting you to come to him for salvation. And to come to him is to turn from your sin, turn from your idols, turn from the things that you are looking to for contentment, and instead come to him, trusting that he will be your all in all. He will bring you that contentment, and he will save you. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Your word is like a sword that cuts right down to the quick of our souls, Lord, that puts its finger right on the problem, Father. That every time we are discontent, we can know that we are worshiping an idol, that we are treating something else as God. We are looking for satisfaction in some place other than you. Because if we were looking for contentment in you alone, we would never be discontent, Lord, if we were consistently constantly looking to you for contentment all of the time, we would never be discontent, Lord. But we thank you that you are enough for us and that you are merciful to us and that when we realize that that is what we're doing, you promise forgiveness for us if we turn from you and we ask your forgiveness and you promise to set us back on the path of righteousness to, get, to help us get back to worshiping you as our all in all. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, more consistently to find our contentment in you alone, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.